We're going to start in Revelations 1, a little introduction, and then we'll flip over to 2.8, a letter specific to the church of Smyrna, the suffering church. So let's see what the God of life and death has to say to us. In 1.12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, ugh, sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, though you may be test that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue to follow you in this Lenten season, continue to show us where we have drifted. Specifically today, show us areas in our lives where we have sowed the seeds of safety, wisdom, or stability out of fear. Those things are not bad in and of themselves, but if out of fear of suffering we have failed to follow you in the names of those things, show us and forgive us. Help us take comfort and strength in you that you are the first and the last, that you have conquered and have the power to give the crown of life. And when we fail, we will fail, I will fail, Continue to remind us that you do not deal with us according to our sins, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us, for those who fear you, and that as far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions from us, and you show compassion on us. Lord, continue to shine light on the dark places of our heart, um, strengthen us, Give us relief from our fear as we prepare for persecution. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe what you would have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys very much. Well, as uh, we mentioned on Wednesday, Lent marks this 40-ish day journey to the cross. And really the question of Lent and whether or not you should participate is what kind of Easter do you want? 
one where you're uh, just floating in and out on any given Sunday, or one that has meaning because you have tasted the pangs of death and suffering along the way, and therefore you rejoice oh so greatly uh, with resurrection that comes. If you remember, um, in Matthew 4, Jesus follows the Spirit into the desert. This is, this is that, that symbolic Lenten journey. Uh, he follows the Spirit into the desert where he is two things, led by the Spirit and tempted by the devil. They both happen at the same time. It's not an either or, it's a both and. He is led into the desert and he is led by the Spirit um, by, and tempted by the devil. Again, Lent started on Ash Wednesday uh, where we started um, this journey through the seven churches at Revelation by looking at the first church. And the first church um, was the church at Ephesus. And if you were there on Wednesday night, just a quick little recap, a really strong church. The church at Ephesus was super strong, like they had strong doctrine, um, they defended doctrine, they toiled hard, they labored hard, um, they, they defended against false apostles, but Jesus um, rebukes them because though they did great ministry, they fell out of love with him. And he was no longer their first love, and he calls them to return, to repent, ultimately, and to be renewed by him. And so that was Wednesday night. Um, and, and now we turn the page to the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna, as we do so, you'll notice um, Jesus has no rebuke for the church at Smyrna. Um, but that doesn't mean things are going to go easy for them. And it's reminded me of his message that he had for the church at Smyrna of this, this pressure, right? And so if I had just a subtitle to today, it would be Faith Under Pressure. And as I was Preparing for this week, I was reminded of a YouTube channel that I'd only heard about, but ventured to go see this week. It's got over 4 million subscribers to this YouTube channel, and it's called The Hydraulic Press. Very creative name. Oh, I got one in the back that's like, oh yeah, love me some hydraulic press. <laughs> Basically, they put things in a hydraulic press, and you get to watch them crush it. And they measure it, they measure how many pounds per square inch, or in, actually it's kilograms or kilopounds, is it kilopounds? That's not correct. I'm an engineer. <laughs> Anyways, they, lots of pressure. They say YouTube is where dumb people go to learn. Woo! All right. But nonetheless, it is called the hydraulic press. My favorite one, uh, there's like bone, a moose bone that they crush. There's crayons, there's a human tooth. Um, but like my favorite one, which took hundreds of thousands of pounds to, to press and break, was a, uh, a completely uh, glass-like ball. And it was pretty amazing to see this thing finally explode. And the people, they don't, they're not believe. I don't know if they're believers or not, but they, they, they have some colorful language in the background, which also made me laugh about how excited they were about just destroying things. But he was like, oh my gosh, it's so strong. But nonetheless, like when I was look, looking at that, when I was watching that, I was reminded of our faith. I went there to discover if this was a picture of our faith. And I was reminded that it is indeed a picture of our faith. We do not know how strong we are or how weak we are until the pressure really mounts. Until you put a hydraulic press on our soul, we don't know how many thousands, hundreds, tens, ones, of pounds it will take to get what comes out of us to get squeezed out but at some point we're going to face the pressure 
of the hydraulic press, so to speak. You know this. Life will tell us this. And although Jesus has no negative word for Smyrna, we're, we're tempted to think in the American church, we're tempted to then think, okay, well, if they're doing everything right, I mean, can you imagine Jesus coming to your church? He knows exactly what's going on. That's what we saw at Ephesus. He's, he's amongst the lampstands. He's here. He's present. And he has commentary for how we're doing. Could you imagine if he visited the Grove Church, what he would have to say to you, what he would have to say to us? the church at Smyrna, no condemnation. There's nothing you're doing wrong. So you should think, if the formula adds up, A plus B equals C, well then, they must be getting ready for some safe and easy passage on the way to heaven. But that's not the A plus B equals C formula that God operates in. Instead, he says, persecution is coming. The devil is about to put some of you in prison. I'm not going to stop it. I have the power to do it. If you remember what we just read, I have the keys to death in Hades. I have the power to do it. I'm not going to stop it. Be faithful, even if it means your death. I don't know about you, but that's disorienting. In a culture of consumption, and in a culture that we're in of suburban Christianity where it's, you know, short services, relevant message, and really fun band. This is the church at Smyrna. You're doing all the right things. Trouble's still on its way. You see, we have to prepare even today in this day and age for the pressure of persecution. And if you'll remember about Wednesday night, there's a structure that Jesus uses throughout uh, these messages that he has for the church. And it's he reveals himself in a specific way. He offers commendation to the church. He then offers correction where necessary. And then he gives them commands on how to make it right. And today, I think the big question behind all of that structure is how do we not just survive but thrive as a church under pressure? Now, the difficulty is most of us are not feeling the pain of persecution okay situationally I get it this isn't a 100% one-to-one ratio of like applicability for today or is it maybe there's a little bit more persecution and pressure that's there that we push to the side but it's actually still here Let's discover that together as we go through. So the first thing we need to do if we're going to be a church under pressure is we need to remember that Jesus knows the true story. He knows the true story of your life. He knows the true story going on behind all of of society and politics and culture. He knows the, the fabric of everything that's going on, and he unveils that for us when he says that, ultimately, when he says this, right? Uh, that's uh, right there in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then you, if your Bible has what I, my Bible has, there's a parenthesis there, and it says, but you are rich. See, there's a, hat, there's, there's a hint there for us that Jesus sees beneath the surface of whatever physical thing, situation that we're in, Jesus has some other spiritual perspective of truth to give us. He knows exactly what's going on. Though they are physically poor, Jesus saw them as spiritually rich. Smyrna in ancient uh, Turkey was known as the first city of Asia. 
If you were traveling from Rome, sorry, coming this way, if you were traveling from Rome and you were headed over to Asia, the first, one of the first cities you would hit on modern-day Turkey was this port city of Smyrna. But that was not the point. The point was they were known as the first city of Asia because they wanted to be known as the first of importance. So they did all sorts of things in the city of Smyrna to become the most uh, important city in Asia that everyone would want to flock to, and indeed they did. They were financially rich. And so in comparison to this society around them, the Christians, though there was no reason for anyone to be poor, the Christians had been pushed out of the, pub, of the marketplace, and indeed they were suffering for their faith just simply because they believed. And Jesus' perspective to them and to us, no matter where we stand on that spectrum, is that though you may be small, though you may think that you are failing in life, not according to Jesus, that you are faithful and instead you are rich. So a question. How do you define success Monday to Friday? What are you running after? Your to-do list that seems to be never-ending, what's it chasing after? How are you defining success? Is it material goods, or is there something spiritual behind the surface, such as being faithful to God? Is that how you define success as a believer? Not in richness in regards to materialism, but in richness and faithfulness. The second thing that he knows is that the Jews that are persecuting the church in Smyrna, he goes on to say, I know that you're rich, or I know that you're of your poverty, but you're rich according to my standards, and the slander of those that say they are Jews, but they're not. Instead, they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Oh, Jesus got some strong words for those that say one thing and do another, that say they're for God, that think they're doing an honor to God, but are actually persecuting his people. He's got some strong words for that crew. And he said it from, all, from the get-go. Like John 8, he calls the Pharisees sons of the devil, and you always want to do your father's will. And he's very strong in regards to slander and, and, and pretending you're more faithful than you really are. The Jews that are persecuting you, this church are really a synagogue of Satan. Again, Smyrna won the rights to erect temples to Caesar Augustus, to the emperor Tiberius, so you think of like the, um, the bids that cities do for, for Olympics and for Super Bowls and, um, and for like Final Fours. That's what Smyrna was doing to be able to erect temples to emperors and to the Senate and to Lydia. And so, that was, and so they, they won all these bids to get these temples built because why? They wanted everyone to flock to their city, economic growth. Everyone would be there, and it's a city that would trump up the idea that Rome is great. Rome is awesome. Nothing can stand against Rome. Now, here's the deal. The Jews had an exemption in the Roman law. Roman law, according to how you would worship, the reason why you had all these temples, is that you would go into a, uh, one of these temples uh, erected to, to Tiberius or whomever, and you would you'd get a pinch of incense and you'd throw it on the altar, and when you threw it on the altar, you would say, Caesar is God, and you'd walk out, and you'd go about your day. The Jews were exempt from this practice. And for a long time, for the early years of Christianity, Christians were also exempt from this practice. The reason why is because the Romans thought 
Christians were just a part of the Jews. There's really no distinction. They've all lost their mind anyways. Who cares? But over time, the Jews began to snitch. And they began to go to the Romans and go, hey, just so you know, these guys, they say Jesus is Lord. They don't say Caesar is Lord. And oh, by the way, they're not a part of our our denomination, so to speak. They're not a part of our religion. They're their own thing. Matter of fact, they're a new religious sect that's on the uprise, and you better keep your eye on them. And all of a sudden, the graces that they had in the first 30, 40 years of, 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 of Christianity were starting to fall away. And you see this in biblical history. Nero rises up, and what does he start to do? But persecute the church. Paul's head was cut off by Nero, right? Peter was persecuted by Nero. I mean, the, the, ultimately, all of those first 12 disciples were all persecuted under Roman rule. And all of a sudden, that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is speaking to in this reality. The third thing that God knows, and Jesus knows for us in all of this, he knows the true story. This is still point one. We're going to get there, though, y'all. That there is synagogue of Satan, but also, I skipped this part so as to emphasize it at the end. He knows your tribulation. He knows your thlipsis. I know you were all wondering, what is that word for tribulation? Thlipsis. It is never used in the New Testament of normal frustrations of life. It is always used in the New Testament of the tribulation, the difficulty, the affliction that comes when the kingdom of God comes to earth. Listen to what one commentator says. Thlipsis is the pressure experienced as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. Thlipsis is the pressure experienced where idols are being unmasked. Thlipsis is the pressure experienced where human pride is confronted with the call to repentance. You know that moment right when you were thinking about coming to the confession cloth? And you were wondering... I don't know if I should really come clean here with the Lord because I don't know if I mean it yet. Flips this. Coming of the kingdom of God in your heart, affliction, pressure. The hydraulic press is coming down. We're inviting you into that terrible place of discomfort for us to basically answer the question week in and week out, whom will I serve? Will I love me? And my preferences, will I love Jesus and his commands and his words? So we're invited to a confession cloth once a year. But we just wonder when that flipsis is pressurizing you before this church at Smyrna, it was much bigger, much broader than that. They were being pushed out of the marketplace. They were all of a sudden starting to get, or at least about to be, persecuted in some pretty terrible ways but the best part about this is not flipsis it's the fact that god knows you remember back in exodus chapter 2 if you're going through this with your growth groups you ended exodus chapter 2 with these words during those days uh, during those many days the king of egypt had died and the people of israel groaned so groaning in you that something's not right here O lord they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It was like an incense to him. 
And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I don't know what you're going through, but God knows. In the midst of trial and grief, it's just, it's just sometimes just best for your dad to just put your arm around you and just go, I know, it's hard. I know. We just did this not too long ago. Don't talk about it with him. We just did this not too long ago in my family. Ned, the red fish, died. Had him for like six months. Moses' real first time to grieve. And he's just grieving. What can you do? Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we get pets? What can you do? You see your little boy, tears in his eyes, crying because little Ned's gone. Hey, buddy, I know can't fix it. I know. God knows your tribulation. He knows the pressure that you're under. He knows that sometimes that pressure is too hard to bear. He knows. What do we do in these circumstances where the pressure is just intense, man? No matter what I do, I can't get out. I can't, I can't fix the pressure. The persecution's coming. The trouble is on its way. What can I do? How can I thrive? Well, Jesus paves the way. Verse 10, do not fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. You see, they're headed into a prison at the devil's hands, and now they're supposed to just turn off the flow of fear? Is Jesus somehow just, is he a callous savior who's simply letting Satan do whatever he wants, who's com- and now he's just commanding us to just, you know, don't fear? No. Go back up to verse 8. Remember how he reveals himself? Why can he command us to do some really hard things? Look at how he reveals himself. It's very timely to this word in verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, oh, who died and came to life. What he's trying to tell you and me is, you might die, fret not. I've died too. It's not the end not the end y'all death is not the end some of us spend our whole lives trying not to die maybe there's a better thing to live for than just pushing back death again and again and again and again and everything we can do is push back death put that death date further away and further away and we don't want to look at it we don't want to think about it just push it away and jesus pulls it to the forefront and goes it's not the worst thing y'all Easy for me to say I'm still living. Easy for me to say I've been in the text all week long. But easy for Jesus to say because he's gone through the valley of death, tasted every bit it's ever been able to give, and come out of the grave glorified and better than ever, forever and ever. Let's just get one thing straight, y'all. The devil's defeated. Let's get one thing straight. And y'all better, y'all, I need to hear more. The devil is defeated. He is your foe, but our, we're not afraid of him. We are not to be afraid of his tactics and what he's up to. Instead, we're to be aware of what he's up to. So let me just tell you, he did not win in the desert with Jesus when he tried to tempt him, if you are the son of man. You got that? If you really think you're a Christian. He didn't win then. He didn't win on the cross, although it looked like it, didn't it? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't catch it. I mean, don't miss it. It's still his God. Like he's still faithful even in the midst of darkness. He didn't win on the cross. He didn't win for those three days when he was in the grave. He resurrected. And then even so, he is now, we just went through this in Philippians, exalted name above all names. He will not win. He has not won. He will not win if you have the blood of Jesus covering over your soul. He won't win. So it's no wonder Jesus can say, don't be afraid. And I got language for him, the enemy, that I can't say right now. But, but what does he do? What does our foe do knowing he's defeated? Well, every Spider-Man movie tells you, every Superman movie tells you, if you can't defeat your foe, you go after their family. Rest assured, he's coming. If he hasn't come last week, he's, he's knocking on the door this week. Especially as you pick up a Lent guide and you start waging war against him, prepare for difficulty and distraction. Oh, you're going to take your soul seriously? Well, demons, rattle them up. Let's get all the things in their way on their calendar and in their heart to not do it. The devil has one major strategy, inflicting pain, inflicting pain and fear on Jesus' family. That's us. And the book of Revelation is here to remind us, but also the book of Hebrews. Check this out. Look at what his main strategy is. So Jesus comes along and says that through death, Jesus might destroy, y'all getting this? Not through life. Through death, he, he has come to destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil, in case you didn't know. And deliver all those who through fear of death. Y'all checking this out? You want to know his big strategy? Through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. You want to know how, you, how the enemy keeps you uh, afraid and on the sidelines? Keeps you afraid of dying. Keeps you afraid of the thing that Jesus actually commands you to do. Die so that you can find life. Spiritually and physically. God knows this. And he doesn't save us from every trial and tribulation so that our faith may be tested. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison. That you may be tested. Friends, we will go through sufferings and trials to test our faith, not because God needs to understand what's in our heart, but we need to understand what's in our heart. And we won't know what's in there until we feel the pressure. I'm not saying run into suffering. I am saying it's coming. And there's a proper perspective to welcoming it in your life. There's going, Lord, you're up to something. May I find you anew in this place. And may I, may you, will you give me the power and strength to walk faithfully through every temptation of this place? Because I'm going to want to run. I'm going to want relief immediately. Lord, help me stay the course in faithfulness to you. Because here's the deal. Throughout the, New Testament, throughout the New Testament, God fortifies his people, and if you're doing this right, you're going to suffer. Just a couple passages, and we're going to move on to number three. 
Beloved, do not be surprised, First Peter says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. Oh, I, mean, I thought he was going to be here for this. I thought he would rescue me. I thought he, I thought he would not let me go to prison for no reason at all. It's not anything strange or new. The first disciples went through it. Odds are you will too. Jesus went through it, and he says, no student's above his master. 2 Timothy 3 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they might be persecuted. Is they might. Is it on the screen? You can read. It will be. Friends, if you want to live a godly life, prepare for hardship. If you want to avoid hardship, don't get on the train with Jesus. This is the preparation that God has for the church at Smyrna and the church in Richmond called the Grove. See, friends, if your faith has never been tested, then one has to evaluate whether or not you have faith. And speaking of faith, God doesn't just give us a negative, don't be afraid. He then says something, pursue something else. Be full of faith. Be faithful there in verse 10. Look at what it says at the end. Behold, the devil is about to throw you, some of you, into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. You see the limits around God's suffering. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, Jesus is pitting fear against faith, and you've got to start understanding why he's doing this. Don't be afraid. Instead, be faithful. Why? Y'all listen now. This is going to hurt. It hurts me. Faith, excuse me. Fear excuses disobedience. I can just say, well, I'm afraid of that. And so therefore, God can't really hold me accountable. I'm just not there yet, Lord. Fear excuses disobedience and fuels unfaithfulness. And so when he calls you, friends, deeper into deeper levels of, of discipleship, we can't be hide behind a calendar that we create so full we can't keep up with our own soul. Maybe you're afraid of the intimacy with the Lord. When he calls you to being missional with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, and you say, I'm afraid it's going to get awkward, fear. You see how it excuses disobedience? So you have to start to wonder, what is your breaking point? What's your price? You see, Satan operates underneath the assumption you have a price. He operates under the assumption I have a price too. If you read the book of Job, it doesn't take long before you start to get to his motives. The whole idea of Job, right? He suffers un unfathomable loss. But it starts with God and Satan in heaven and Satan going to to, to God and be like, hey, I know Job has a price. He will disown you. He will betray you. You let me go after Job and I'll find that price. And God and his sovereign providence for Job and for all of us goes, oh, you think he has a price? He ain't got no price. Go ahead. And that's why he suffers unimaginable loss so that you, you may, your faith may be tested. 
Satan is operating under the assumption you have a price. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to bet you ours is far less. Week in and week out. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He's, he's, he's operating under the assumption that you're going to sell Jesus out. And so you have to start going, what's my breaking point? Where is it that I am tempted to go, you know, I know Jesus loves me, but I really would like this. And you start to just kind of like, you know, what's his name? In Lord of the Rings? Gollum, thank you. You knew where I was headed? I didn't even have to say it. She knew it. Smeagol, Gollum, he just starts, oh, my cookies. I give those up for Lent, y'all. Satan assumes you have a price, but look, this is not just a warning, an ethereal warning. This was Smyrna's reality. You want to know about our, our heritage of faith? I want to introduce you to a man named Polycarp, and then we'll be done. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He was discipled by the apostle John. He then mentored another church father named Irenaeus. If you don't know these names, you've got to get to know them. Polycarp was the bishop at the church of Smyrna. He was martyred at the age of 86 in 155 AD. And as they tested him, as Roman officials came and grabbed him, they put him on a chariot. They started questioning him on the way into the stadium. When he would not give up, the first thing they did was kick him off the chariot and dislocated his hip immediately. And as he limped into the stadium, it is said that there was a tumult so loud that no voices, individual voices could be heard except one. And that was the one from heaven that said, be strong and show yourself the man, Polycarp. So as he's being brought into the stadium for his eventual martyrdom, they pressed him. And they said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And he replied, since you are vainly urgent that as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend to not know who and what I am. Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn that the doctrines of, what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and you shall hear them. As they pressed him, right? They said, swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp says, 80 and 6 years have I served him. What are you doing when you're 86? Sitting on a beach somewhere? 80 and 6 years. Years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They ramped it up, and they said, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent, Polycarp. You think that bothers him? He says this, call them. Call those wild beasts in. We are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And they threatened him even with more pain. He goes, okay, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. And again, and finally, Polycarp stood firm, saying this, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment, reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? 
bring forth what you will. I don't have time for the end of the story, but go Google the martyrdom of Polycarp. Your mind is going to be blown at what happens next. Will you stand firm? What will be your answer? Maybe it's not as forthright as bringing you into a stadium. Maybe it's just a little compromise here, a little compromise there. Jesus to Smyrna and to the grove is that we may not be persecuted in these ways right now, yet, but rest assured that behind every tear, every suffering of injustice, every whisper of a lie of the temptation, Satan is trying to put you back into, into prison, enslaving you to himself. And Jesus holds out two things for our motivation. The crown of life and the fact that we would not taste a second death. And you've got to ask yourself the question, second death? Yeah. So... We're all going to experience the first death. Unless Jesus comes when we die. At the end of time, Revelation 20 and 21 lays this out for us. Everyone's going to get resurrected, believer and unbeliever. Jesus at the great white throne is then going to judge believer and unbeliever. For the believer, you'll be judged on one thing, whether or not your name is written in the book of life. Now juxtapose that upon that which non-believers will be judged. Non-believers will be judged based on their works. You want to stand before God and want justice based on your works? You're not going to the good place. You want to stand before God based on whether or not he knows your name and it is written in his book, no matter what your works are. It's called grace. And when he judges you, he will put those that are written in the, in the, in the Lamb's book of life, will be able to go to a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, I don't even know what that's like. But it's amazing. And those that are judged by their works are going to be thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and the devil are. And it says in Revelation 21, verse 8, and this is the second death. He wants to save you from the second death. The first one, optional. The second one, that's his priority. Stand firm in the faith. Be faithful unto this first death so that the second one can't touch you because that's the one that really matters. That fire, it may go for yet an hour and then I'll be gone. But the one that goes for eternity, there's no relief from. So Jesus' offer for eternal life and safety but not physical safety. And so just as we close, what must we do? Number one, Ready yourself for true persecution. Ready yourself for true persecution at the hands of others. Second, pray for the persecuted church. Right now, people put their life on the line to get to a gathering. I'm going to bet you they sing a little different in that church. I'm going to bet you lunch isn't on their mind. I know it because I've been in one. I've been in the persecuted church. The one in India that we serve with, some of y'all have been in that church. There's literally a picture of me inside of a church structure that has been burned down and we're eating lunch. We've been in these churches. Pray for these saints. Pray for our brother Beak, for our brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq, 
our brothers and sisters in Indonesia and in China and all over the world where they are risking their lives to make sure the name of Jesus is exalted above every name in their life. Maybe we need to go more personal, not just to ready yourself and to pray. Well, all right, you need to identify where you spend fear as wisdom. We already talked about that with our Lent guide. You need to identify what your breaking point is. What kind of pressure will the devil put on you to test you? Use Lent as a time to fortify your faith. Read. Examine. Memorize. Friends, be faithful through all sorts of persecution, including those small rejections. Small social ones, they roll your eyes at you. Endure. Lean in. Invite. Now, at this point in our gathering, and at this point in the journey, I have to tell you, there is a way out from suffering. There is a way out from the life of persecution. Not right here. We want to know the way out? Don't take Jesus seriously. Just make this a weekly exercise. When Jesus says that he's Lord... You just take him as Savior. Lord is optional. That's how we'll, 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 we'll skirt persecution and difficulty as Christians. If we don't heed the words of him who says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever would, uh, loses his life for my sake will save it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you have come to give us eternal life, not necessarily physical safety. But please implore in our hearts. Please put the gravity of hell in our hearts for ourselves and for our loved ones and for our neighbors. This is an intense word and a difficult word for a Lenten season that's already difficult. Holy Spirit, you've got work to do in our hearts, and we've got work to do with you, and there's a lot of things that are going to pull at us and tug at us to get us to not care about you, but like the church at Ephesus, may we return back to our first love, may we return to the Lord with our whole heart, the repentance and faith and the good news. That our God loves sinners. That our God puts words in the scriptures down for all of eternity so that we may be warned to repent. Eternal life is offered to us and the second death is not meant for everyone. And praise God that many of us here will not taste that second death. But many in this room and many who listen online and many in every church across the world have duped themselves into thinking that 
we stand before you at the end of time, if we just have done enough to outdo our, our bad, maybe you'll just have mercy on us. Oh, free us from such a prison. Oh, but by grace, through a canceled debt and written record that we are free by the blood of Jesus and the enemy has no claim on our name anymore. We're not his. We're sons and daughters, just like our brother Polycarp who has paved the way so many years ago that we might forget who we are. We are Christians. Washed in the blood of Jesus, fully forgiven for every sin and failure. We'll have this week, much less for the rest of our lives. That you do not deal with us according to our sins. Help us remember when we forget, when we're tempted. May we find strength in you, O oh Lord. So call us to hard things and let us do the impossible by your power and by your grace. And may we follow in faith. For your son's name, for his glory. Do we not just pray? We plead. We ask, Lord, that you'd protect every Christian across the planet today that's worshiping you. We ask that you would protect our brother Beak from every temptation, not just to disqualify himself from ministry, because I'm sure there are plenty of temptations there, but also to just give himself up for a better life doing something a little bit easier. When the orphans continue to cry out, where's my food? I'm just hungry. Why does it keep raining indoors? Lord, give them the strength to carry on. Give them the strength to be faithful. And as we rise, they go to bed. And so, Lord, as they're on their bed, may it be evident for them today how much you love them. You care for the orphan. And you visit them in their time of need. And I've never met an orphan that's not in need. And so we know you're there with them. Be with us as well as we remember them. Help them, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.